So I was thinking, what what psalm should we open with this morning? And that's good enough for me. The psalms are, a lot of them are intended to be sung. That's what the psalm means. Um, so yeah, we just sang a psalm from a different author this morning. Not one that's in the Bible, but just as good. So we're in uh, John, we were in chapter 2 last week, and uh, we left off with uh, with several hands up, and uh, <coughs> Doc, you had a question, or you had an I observation. Had a, I had a comment. A comment. That so, had to do, oh, go ahead. Well, where we were, let me set a little context, and then can make your comment and take us to the passage of Malachi. So, does anybody remember where we were and what we were discussing last week? I know it was a whole seven days ago. And I, I say that because seven days is a long time. We have a seven-day memory. Um, you can forget, you can have the most tragic experience of your life in seven days later, later be in a completely different place. A lot of times that's not always true. Uh, it's amazing how our brain works. We refresh on a seven-day cycle. Um, so, does anybody remember where we were? We were pushing through the wedding and, uh, and trying to get back to the cleansing of the temple or getting to that. Yeah, so in chapter 2, there, there are two, um, two narratives that we were looking at. One of them was the wedding in Cana, and the other is uh, the cleansing in the temple. And... Uh, so we had, we kind of moved from the wedding and purification and what that uh, story was about, and we were moving into the uh, the cleansing in the temple. And what were some of the observations we made about cleansing in the temple? structure here is that um, John is presenting who Christ is so that we'll, or who Jesus is so that we'll know that he is the Christ and that believing in him will have life in him and we see that as his theme and I told you I'd read it every week so I'm going to read it again John 20:31. you all will have this totally memorized uh, it says uh, 
There are many other signs that Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's intent, is that we'll know who Jesus is and believe um, in him as the Son of God, and that uh, believing in him is, there's, uh, that is how we enter into eternal life and that John's going to make that exposition very clear. So we understand that uh, when, when you come to know, how do you believe that Jesus is, is uh, the Christ, the Son of God, right? So he had been presented when we looked in John chapter 1, John the Baptist um, said this is the, the Lamb of God, and we saw all the different names for Messiah listed um, there in chapter 1, and he pointed him out, so people could have head knowledge. This is who he is. Right? But how do you go from knowledge to belief? And um, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Right? So that's, that's part of what John is ex- exploring for us here. And he's doing this through carefully crafted um, accounts that he observed in the life of Jesus and in, in participating with Jesus in his ministry. And so he was there in Cana. He was there, um, probably, we don't have, uh, I mean, he, he gives it as first-hand account. So um, the assumption is, is that Jesus' disciples were with him on this account and recorded this, that it wasn't just a second-hand story. And that um, what we see is that the Christ challenges uh, our understanding of who God is and what his purpose is, and what um, all of the um, trappings around religion are that would point us to God. So religion is not necessarily bad, but it's a, a construct that we put into place. And, and Jesus challenges that. He challenges that specifically in the institutions and the festivals of Judaism. So the first institution we see challenged is understanding of wedding and what that is about right and we understand that that's essential in God's design um, the the whole wedding ceremony and what that was about and the purification that was necessary in order to enter into a wedding of uh, the virgin bride and the bridegroom and the celebration of that Now, in the second part of the chapter, we see uh, the institution of the temple being challenged. So what was the temple to the Jews, is a question. And I'll ask you, what was the temple to the Jews? Where God lives. lives. That's right. That's the place where you come to um, be brought into the presence of God that God actually dwells in that Holy of Holies, and that um, the relationship between God and his people would occur through the priesthood. So the prophet would declare to the people who God was. The people would be brought to God through the priest and the priesthood. And so they would go to the temple, they would offer their sacrifice there because they weren't... uh, able to come into the presence of God because of their sin, because of their defilement, because God is righteous and true and holy, and in that, he can't have unrighteousness, untruth, and unholiness in in his kingdom or in his presence. And so there was a necessary separation, but God was there. And that's what the temple was to the Jews. And we understand how tragic it was when God left the temple. We read about that in Ezekiel. When the people had become so corrupt in their heart um, and claiming that they knew what good was and God had no part of that, um, that God actually left and said, okay, we'll let you live with that. And they went into a period of captivity um, in order to be purified and cleansed. So... Um, that's a a terrible thing when God leaves the temple. But the temple to them meant being in the presence of God. Right? And yet there was a whole religious practice that grew up around the temple. 
right? So there was the whole sacrifice part. In order to come into the presence of God, you got to bring your sacrifice. And there were certain ones that were prescribed by their religion. Their religion said you need to have these kinds of sacrifices for these kinds of events and, and times in your life. And so the people would come in and uh, that because that's the center of their universe, their economy, their culture, their relationships, it's all around the temple, right? Um, and all around this one God. And they would come in and they would be ill-prepared in order to come into the presence of God. So they would um, make sure that they changed their currency to the right kind of currency that could be accepted for the temple tax. They would um, purchase the various things that they needed for their sacrifices, right? And so what happened is this business grew around the temple. A business of uh, meeting people's immediate uh, commercial needs, and uh, that was really an offense to God because it wasn't the content of what people brought in the sense of a lamb or a dove or a grain offering or whatever the offering was that they were bringing. It was the heart. That's what God was concerned about. So um, we understand that because Jesus points that out. He pointed it out like with the widow's might when the, the widow put in uh, less than a penny into the offering as she came into uh, the synagogue and Jesus pointed out that that's more than all the wealth of these people that give from their plenty. So are the money changers selling sacrificial Well, there's different kinds of businesses. Kind of like if you go to the strip mall, you might have a photo shop, you might have a clock repair shop, you might have a whatever. So there are different uh, booths that would be set up. And money changing... So people were coming from all over, and the currency wasn't uh, unified like we experience here. Um, and it had to be a particular uh, particular denomination, and it had to be a particular way. Some people speculated that, well, it couldn't have um, Caesar's mark on it because that would, you know, that's the stamp of an idol. I don't know that that's necessarily what was the concern here. It was just that they would have uh, the proper um, sacrifice or, or offering as they're coming into the temple. So money changers would be one, and they'd have people that, uh, in this case, it tells us, found the temple, those were selling oxen and sheep and doves, so those were the, the things that would be presented for sacrifice, and then money changers seated at their tables. So two different kinds of businesses, but both in close proximity. So if their heart was really in the right place, wouldn't they have come with their animal or came with their offering versus a, oh, we'll just get it at the door? Um, so that, that would be one thing. It's very difficult for you to travel a long distance mm -hmm. and bring your sheep along, <laughs> right? Uh, so people were coming from a long distance. In this case, they'd have been coming from Galilee um, in the north, at a minimum, and they'd have been coming from surrounding areas, so looking at a map, they'd have been coming from from all over the place. So Jerusalem is right here, um, and Galilee's way up here. So to bring a, a sheep for your offering, uh, from Galilee, for example, all the way down <coughs> to the temple was uh, a long journey with that critter. There was a whole lot of sheep in this area right here. So this is Bethlehem, which is about uh, seven miles, less than that, from, uh, from Jerusalem. And that was shepherding country. So there was a lot of livestock already in this area because that was the kind of um, agriculture business they had there uh, was in herding. Um, as, and they also had uh, wheat and other things and barley that they would do there. So when people were coming from a long distance, they wouldn't necessarily bring it. It just wasn't convenient. Um, and there were specific requirements about how, what kind of animal you would present. So that's all, all detailed in the law. And what would, why do you suppose that's detailed like that? It points to Christ. Pardon me? It points to Christ. Yeah. 
it's, it's, uh, it's showing the kind of sacrifice that really is necessary um, if you're making a sacrifice for atonement of sin. Right? Or they had other kinds of sacrifices that they would make too, or offerings that they would make. You read about that in Leviticus. And it's always talking, it's expressing something about who God is and who Christ is. And so there were these requirements set up. But we know that when people didn't have that, they weren't able to meet that strict requirement, God accepted their offering. You know, we read about that in Micah, right? What does God desire? What's God's heart? Right. So if we go to, to uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 6, it says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So, God clarified what that legal prescription that you find in the, the Pentateuch was all about in the Torah to the people of the law. They would have read that and they would have said, well, there's this requirement, there's this requirement, there's this requirement, and people saw a business opportunity, I can meet that, right? When what God really was concerned with was the heart, but the, the prescription was rather a description of who God is and who Christ is as our uh, so this is the main problem, not that they were buying and selling animals so people could bring it to the temple, it's where they were buying and selling. Well, there was that too. Yeah. Right. The fact that they were profiting exorbitantly from it. Yes. They were taking advantage of the religious requirements for their own profit. Yep. So, um, let me see if I have my Nehemiah. Stuff here. Hold on, just a second. There were to be animals and such without blemish, and oftentimes they would take, even though they got one person as a blemished animal, and then reselling them supposedly as unblemished. Let me see if I can find a good uh, um, map of. Uh, see if this has no. That's not it. There's. I have a map in here of the. Where's that? Down towards the bottom, keep going. Up, down, down, down. Down, down. Down, down. Keep going. Down, down, down. Nehemiah. Yeah, right there. There we go. There we go. That's what. If you had blemished sheep before you buy them. Pardon? They should have they should have had a sheep a sheep back Yeah. Yeah, like carpets. So this was uh, Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. So this was post um Post-exile, they, they had already gone to Babylon, had been there, had, were coming out of captivity um, and resettling the land. And this is what the wall that was rebuilt by Nehemiah looked like and where it would have stood. And you'll notice the Temple Mount is right here. Um, so this is the city of David down here. There's a spit that comes down. Um, and then the, the walled city today you were to look at that, kind of follows this line here, comes out a little bit further out here, and then comes back like this. And so there was a lot of um, development right here. So this area is called Mount Zion. Actually, it's a little bit further out here, Mount Zion. Um, you can actually see this broad wall within Jerusalem today. They've just un unearthed it. Um, and they found some of these gates, and some of the gates still exist today, right? One of the gates that exists is the North Gate. Um, and that gate was called the Sheep Gate in that day. And the reason why is because the Temple Mount was right here, and the sheep would be outside the city, and they would bring them in through the Sheep Gate. So they could have done their commerce somewhere else. They didn't have to do it in the Temple Mount area. But that's what was convenient, because people would get there, and, and that's kind of the central point. They said, oh, 
It makes sense. People are going to the temple. Let's set up right there. Um, and what they would do is they would have the, the shepherds would bring their sheep for sale out here, and then the priests would go through and they'd sort those sheep and they'd say, yeah, this one won't work, no, that one won't work, or the Levites, I would say. And then they would bring those in to be sold through the sheep gate. Um, this east gate here is sometimes called the golden gate, right, or the beautiful gate. You read about that in Acts, you read about that. So when Jesus, on the night that he was, um, before he was crucified, he was over here on Mount Zion in a, uh, a house, probably a, a relative of Barnabas, and he came through the Temple Mount and came out this gate, and that whole, what we're going to read when we get to John chapter 15, is all about Jesus' walk through the city and through the different gates and different things that he would have seen in the temple. So he understood what all this stuff was about. Jesus understood what each of these gates meant in the larger sense of God's kingdom. He understood what all of the symbolism was about, the fruitfulness, the grapevine, the sheep. He understood all of that, and he even told us some of that. Right. So in the Last Supper he said, um, as they're celebrating the Passover meal, and they're looking at the different elements, he explains that. He said, this bread is my body broken for you. This wine is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus is bringing um, understanding to what the elements of religion were all about. He's actually challenging um, these different institutions and festivals. So what Jesus says is he's trying to help us understand what it's really what the real meaning is. And he comes into the temple and he says, man, you guys are so far off. Let's cleanse this temple. If you're really going to approach God, you need to take a look at your heart. And he comes in and it, it actually, um, he has an anger, as God has an anger, about people coming to him with religious practice that is empty. And so he says, you've turned um, my father's house into a place of business, is what he says. Now you read the other accounts and it says that he had turned it into a den of thieves, right? And that's the reason why is because he's quoting a different scripture. So that's one of the things that tells us maybe this is two different incidents. Some of the other things that we read, which is where we started, it says maybe this is two different incidents, is, is the single place that he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? Well, when did they start building that temple? It wasn't done yet, by the way. It still had another 25 years to go before it got finished off. Um, when did that temple start being built? That was Herod the Great's building project. So when we read about Herod, there was, there was the Herods. So uh, Herod the Great was a great builder. He, uh, he built the, um, what still stands today in Caesarea, um, by the sea, and he, he figured out how to pour concrete in, in the ocean to, in order to build up his structures. That concrete still stands today. The guy was, he had good engineers, and he had good understanding of scientific knowledge. We think we're so smart, stuff that we build doesn't last 2,000 years, and yet Herod the Great's buildings did. They still stand today, and you can go to them. Uh, and view them, and the west wall of the temple is what Herod was building as the Temple Mount. And he started that in about 20 B.C. So we know that it was started about 20 B.C. Add 46 to that. What date would this have been? It would have been about 26 A.D. Right? When was Jesus crucified? There, there are two different popular dates. 33 AD. I, I go with the 33 AD, and I will defend that. And I base that on Harold Honer's research. Dr. Honer uh, from uh, Dallas uh, Seminary wrote a book uh, in dating, and there are some, some challenges to that. And I agree with the challenges, but I agree that uh, 
that Christ was crucified on April 3rd, 33 AD, was raised on April 5th, 33 AD, and from that I can reconstruct dates. Some people would say that it was 30 AD, and that they based that on uh, that when Jesus began his ministry, he would have been about 30 years old, so if he was born in 4 BC, you don't count zero, that means that he would have started his ministry around 26 or 27 AD. And that he would have then, that ministry would have lasted three years, and then he was crucified, um, and that would have made it 30 AD. So if you use the early date, it fits almost exactly with what's in John. If you use the later date, um, it still can fit with what's in John, because uh, our understanding of when Jesus' ministry started, what was the actual start of that ministry, and some of these things that occurred. For example, we know that Jesus was in the temple uh, working with, I say working, uh, speaking with the, the uh, scribes and uh, the teachers when he was 12 years old, right? That doesn't mean his ministry had started then. So there are things that Jesus did, for example, the wedding at Cana. Was that the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Or was that just something that happened prior to what we would say, this is the official start of Jesus' ministry? So I would say that in either case, it works for either day, 33 AD or 30 AD, and that this uh, temporal cue here, and John preserves this for us, tells us that this is probably at the beginning of Jesus' ministry might have even been before what we would call the official start of his ministry. That he went to the temple and he was concerned about the heart of the people. And God is a zealous God. He's a jealous God. He wants, he wants life for his people. And empty religious practice brings death and it's the worst kind because you think you're safe. You think because you're doing something that that is pleasing God. And, and Jesus was saying, no, pay attention to your heart. Look at what's going on here. These guys are totally messing up what it means to come to God. It's become a business. And it made him angry. So he turned it over. Now, this is probably a good place to jump to Malachi because that kind of gives us that understanding. So the, the verse in Malachi was... Uh, well, it's chapter 3, and uh, if you start at verse 1, it connects it with John the Baptist, and go clear to the first, uh, the first phrase of verse 4, and it just, just describes what Jesus was doing. So, reading uh, from chapter 3, verse 1, mm-hmm. so we say, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, this is the prophetic voice, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like uh, fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. That's the passage we're referring to. So this is what's going on. Jesus cares about the heart of the people. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, God incarnate, cares about what these people are doing and how they're coming to him. And he wants to purify that. Just as he took the vessels of purification for the wedding and he made that a source of unending joy, he also desires to purify how people come into the presence of God so that that can be a place of of, uh, forgiveness and new life. Right? That's what that offering is about. That the blood of the offering by the high priest is offered on the mercy seat of God, ultimately once a year, for the atonement of the people, such that that which has um, separated God from his people has been forgiven 
covered such that um, people can now come into the presence of God and have new life. There are two aspects of regeneration, of being born again. We're going to get to that because you'll see how it all kind of fits together. There is the aspect of forgiveness where God does not hold, uh, hold us accountable and that we understand that from a judicial perspective. And then there is part of regeneration is new life. That you actually, it's not the old life repaired, it's completely new. It's the very life of God himself, that which we've been separated from. And that that's what is Jesus' heart when he goes into the temple and he sees that, man, people are like, they totally misunderstand what's going on here. It really angers him. And he tells people what is really going to happen. What's really going to happen here is that his body is going to be destroyed. This temple is going to be destroyed, the temple of his body. And in three days it will be raised up. And that what that means is that the sacrifice, the blood offering will be made on the mercy seat. And that the result of that is that death is conquered. Sin is forgiven and death is conquered. And new life is available that he will be raised in three days. So that's what Jesus is saying. And they totally misunderstand, right? But what happened is is that when this statement was remembered and was actually used against him in his trial, um, and they couldn't quite remember the details, but they remember he said this, and that the temple was a really important institution, and when Jesus was on trial before the high priest, they're trying to find anything that they can to show that he is against Judaism, that he is an enemy of the state, the enemy of the religion, an enemy of the state, such that he can be crucified. And they actually use this misunderstanding against him. So it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing signs which he was his signs which he was doing. So there's there's a kind of belief that happens as a result of God doing a, a, a supernatural work in your presence, right? Now, some of us in this room have probably experienced that. Um, there are things that have happened in my life that I would say were beyond the natural event that would have occurred, that God intervened in history in such a way to preserve me or to um, present himself to me in some way because I'm really stupid and I needed it, right? Um, and so I and I think there are probably others, not the the stupidity part would necessarily be there, but I think that God presents himself in history at various times, and that people when that happens, it's like they believe. But that's kind of like uh, if if that's what your faith is based on, is that miracle? Um, it won't last. There's a different kind of belief that's deep seated where um, in your heart there's a, a change that occurs. That um, what happens is, is that you know, in the sense of experiential knowledge, you know that Jesus is who he said he is. That he is fully divine, fully man, because he said he was. You know that he truly does care about you, even though you totally don't deserve that he loves you in a way that you could never love. And that um, what he has done for you affects your security for all time, for eternity. You are in him. right? When you know that, it changes you. Now, you can't prescribe how you get to that point. Right? It's not a practice that you do. But when it happens, you don't need a supernatural sign to make uh, a belief happen. You don't need to see uh, a three-pointer with 0.9 seconds remaining in the game right? <laughs> to know that you have a good team. You believe because of who he is, not because of what he's done. But these particular 
signs were chosen so that we would know. So John is telling us a story here of who Jesus is. And I say a story in, uh, it's, it's a narrative, it's a first-hand account. He's the reporter, and he's telling us what he saw and what he knows. And this is what he saw and what he knew. There were people there that, uh, that believed because of the signs he was doing. Some of those aren't going to remain. Some of them are. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. He wasn't um, going on the testimony of man about who he was. For he knew all men. He knew what was in the heart of a man. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, it goes on and says, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So what you see is there's a connection so John is connecting uh, this next narrative account of Nicodemus with the previous narrative account and what was concluded from that narrative account. So the narrative account about the temple is all about the heart of the people and what real purification looks like and why God has that kind of concern and zeal. right? And that's going to be restated. In fact, you're going to see it restated so clearly in John 3.16 that's the implicit message of this account here. That the zeal for your house will consume me. Right? God loves us and wants to actually come to us. Which is an incredible thing. That he would seek us out. Um, and that this is connected now to this next account. So that's what we're going to see. That John is building, he's, he's weaving these together such that we'll know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing in him, we have life in his name. That makes sense? Daniel, you had your hand up? Uh, the part where, where verse 23 through 25 mm-hmm. uh, made me think about uh, in Daniel chapter 2, what Daniel's saying, thanking God for giving him the interpretation and he says in his prayer um, you know what is in the dark and light dwells with you and this is the light of the world and he doesn't need to know or he already knows what's in men's heart which is darkness right and what he does is he calls men into the light so um, if you look at the so at at some point I remember I I listed um, I call it the components of salvation. Does anybody remember that? So occasionally I I try and give you guys more concrete theology. Um, And so at one point um, I presented the different stages of salvation. And it begins with calling. Right? That God calls you. Actually it begins with choosing. And then calling. Um, and so I listed, and there's like 15 different steps, and regeneration is right there in the middle, right? Which is our, us being born again. So what we understand is that a lot of this has to do with God reaching out to us. So this is the general message to us. I mean, we could, we could say, yeah, this is a great story for first century Jews. It's what it's about. No, this is something about us. The reason that God preserved this for 2,000 years is so that we could hear his call on our life. So that we could hear um, his call to believe in him. And that believing him, just because you're sitting in a church, doesn't necessarily mean that you get it. In fact, I met a lot of people in church, and I met a lot of people in seminary who didn't fully get it. There were those that got it in the sense of, I don't understand it here, but I understand it here, so I want to understand it here, right? In other words, they wanted to have the the theology to support so that they could clearly communicate that which they believe. And then there were those that, man, they were great theologians, but they never made the trip to the heart. That's what's going to happen next here. We're going to read about a man. Yes? I I agree with what you said about Jesus cleanses the temple, the old and the house, the house, and the 
hard issue. I agree with that. I also see in this story Jesus once again telling the people, I'm the Messiah. I am God. You know, he says, my father's house. Yes. And when you think about it, you know, only God has the, the right to dictate how worship will happen. Right. So he's going in there trying to set things in order. Uh, one of the things I'm kind of uh, not puzzled about, but, you know, it's Passover, <coughs> the temple, Jerusalem is crowded, and you got to know that the Roman soldiers are on edge. Yeah. Looking for uprisings and... and riots and stuff. It, it amazes me that Jesus goes through this cleansing of the temple, and I mean, even even our religious leaders just kind of going, hey, by what authority? Show us a sign. So, you know, yeah. there was no, you know, you still get no intervention by law enforcement here. Yeah. It's kind of like, how, how did he do this? How did he do this? Creating a big commotion. <laughs> so, uh, bring up this guy. They didn't call in the, uh, you know, the riot squad. Well, there's a reason why they didn't crawl in the riot squad. So, Here's the, the Temple Mount, Temple being like right here about. Um, and then there are the, uh, the courts around the Temple. Um, I have other pictures, but I'm not going to search for them right now. I'll show them next week. So uh, the Gentiles could not go beyond a certain courtyard. So those guards would have been on the outside. But there were Temple guards. Uh, those are Jews. Jews That's yeah. part of the Levitical. You don't see a reaction on their part either. Uh, well, they, they didn't know what to do with Jesus at this yeah. point. All of a sudden, here's this guy that's that's obviously very religious. He comes in and he has an argument with the money changers. He has an argument with the, the uh, those selling sacrificial animals. And at this point, it doesn't say that they were concerned about uh, they didn't use this as an occasion to arrest him. We read about it in the other accounts that they actually did use it as an occasion to arrest him. Here, they're, they're saying, what do you mean you're going to rebuild this temple in three days, right? What kind of a nut are you? Uh, so that's kind, of, that's kind of where it was coming off, is that it would have been the temple guards, it wouldn't have been the Roman guards. The Roman uh, palace was built outside, just outside of that area. Um, such that uh, the Romans were there in force. And if there would have been an uprising, um, they would have enforced uh, their might. In fact, they did at a later point in time. There was an uprising, and they completely destroyed the temple. Right? Um, but at this point, it was all within the Jewish community. And, it, and this is another reason why I think this is an early account. So this is a double. And that um, they didn't, use this as a reason to arrest him. Whereas they did in that final week. That was one of the things brought against him. I think, I think the temptation here in this passage when you read it is it's, it's kind of common because you tend to think that Jesus is, cares more about the temple itself the cleansing of the temple itself than he does about the hearts of the people that are there. It's right. kind of a subtle a subtle reading that you get, but he's within the old system, he's saying your hearts are in the wrong place right. because you're using this. Within the old system. But he's about to change that system completely. Right. He's about to change it, but that's why he said, I'm about to, I'm about to break this thing down. He's right. talking about the body. He's talking about the new system is the temple is us. We are the church. Right. The temple and the Holy Spirit is going to be Everywhere and everything, it's not just going to be in this very specific place that only the high priest can go to. So right. now it's it's everywhere within where the Holy Spirit is within us. And so, and the temptation, we have the same temptation today to think that the church itself and the building and the institution right. itself is the house of God. Right. And therefore, people come in and should dress in a certain way or should act in a certain way or should, which, you know, I understand respect and I kind of think of the, right. the truth is that the, the church is holy. It's important in that to understand that the old 
was intended to point to uh, intended to point to God. So when we read through Hebrews, it says it is a type that is intended to understand the truth, and um, the that's why I think there's a that concern for the heart is where he's saying, and, and Jesus actually fulfilled the law in the sense that what the law was descriptive, um, he actually lived that fully as, as the, the human uh, part of Messiah, right? And I don't want to use part in thinking that Jesus was, you know, had parts, because that's not the case. Um, he's fully God, fully man. But in that, he, f- he fulfilled all of what the heart of the old was, such that the old was not done away with, completely discarded, but uh, completely understood or realized in the new. Yeah, and, uh, and you read about that in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. Actually, in 10. The whole old institution, um, it's what Paul refers to as a, as a tutor, right. leading these people where they were at. Right. In a system, in an age where where people were sacrificing to pay God, people were that was the only thing they understood. Right. And it was as if God, like, I, I don't know if I completely understand this, but I think when he's saying take the blood of the ox and put it on the earlobe, all these little tiny minutia that he required of them in the law, it was it was it was not that he's meeting he's requiring them to meet some kind of cosmic demand. That right. He had for them. Right. It was he was teaching them. He was using what they understood, using what they needed to bring them into this new understanding right. that Christ was going to fulfill this new this new age that Christ was going to fulfill. And so sometimes we read the Old Testament, we think it's like God has this like these cosmic demands that must be met. This little minutia that all has to happen. Yeah. It was like he was using all of that to teach these people and to bring right. them into and, this new and so in understanding the salvation process that um, we understand that a component of that is repentance what is repentance repentance is when we come to not only know the truth but believe the truth not only about who God is but who we are so if it was possible under the old system right the old religion to actually uh, complete your relationship with God Christ would not have to have died. But it is not possible. And that's what happens in that moment of repentance. You realize that Christ had to die for you. And that you know the depth of your depravity and it causes us to weep. Right? And it causes us to weep for what he had to do in order to redeem us. And it's a, a weeping of remorse and it's a weeping of incredible joy that God would actually do that for us. That he no longer is the God, um, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, but he is my God, Adonai. He's the God that um, I am in relationship with. He is my Lord. And that's part of that whole process. And that's what Jesus is... I mean, he knows that men don't get it. That's why it says, I don't trust myself to any man. Because I know what's in a man. I know the fallen nature that is there. I know the corruption of sin. I know that they will always in the end choose what they think is good, not what God thinks is good. That's That's the result of sin. And... In order to change that, you actually have to come into contact with God. You actually have to put off the old and put on the new. You have to be born again. That's the message he has for us, which we're not going to get to this morning. But he is challenging everything about the old as a broken system. But he's fulfilling everything about the old as it was... Uh, expressed in a descriptive way of what it means to be in the presence of God and to have relationship with Him. Um, and what you read, so what is the Bible? The Bible is a revelation of God about His person, His nature and character, His purpose and plan, that which He's up to. 
and uh, the human response to that revelation. That's the Bible, in, in short. So when we read through it, we should expect to see God fully revealed as is necessary for us to come into relationship with him. And we should understand his plan of redemption and that our response is, is desired. It's, we're called. And when you're called, you've got to answer. And you can answer one of two ways. It's a really simple, really simple question. Do you want to lay down your throne, your crown, at the feet of the true king and be in his kingdom and be his child? Or do you want to do your own thing? That's, that's what God asks. He just wants us to clearly understand. So he'll push us sometimes right to the breaking point. He did that with the people that he had chosen to represent him in the world. He does that in our lives. He will take us to the point of extreme anguish so that we will be, understand the choice that we have to make. Do we choose life or do we choose death? So let's go ahead and close here in prayer. There's a lot more that can be said. Lord, I just thank you for opportunity today to, um, to get into your word, and I thank you for your, your guidance as we um, peel back uh, the words in, on the page and we uh, truly try and understand that which you preserve for us through John, your servant, um, and that uh, you would uh, challenge us in that, Lord, as we come to understand the, the nuances of meaning, um, what it means that you have a zeal um, for your temple and that you have a zeal for your people. Um, Lord, we, just, we, uh, we ask that you would prick our hearts and challenge us throughout this week as we wrestle with that, as we look at the story of Nicodemus and wrestle with that, some of the most... Um, theologically complex in the Bible and yet from a simple fisherman as he retells a story. Lord, um, just ask that you would guide us in that, that your Holy Spirit would uh, illuminate um, our hearts and our minds, our hearts first and our minds also. Lord, um, we thank you for all of this that you're doing. We thank you that this is Mother's Day, that we get to celebrate um, the women in our lives that are so special. I know they're special to you, they're special to us, Lord. I thank you um, for my mother and for my wife. Lord, uh, I thank you for your provision and your protection as we go from here. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for your service to us, that you have laid down your life for us, that we might actually be able to come into your presence. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this in your name we pray. Amen.